We're tempted to invite our addicted or unfaithful spouse back into our life. But when is reconciliation premature? Hi, I'm Kim Pullen, founder of Hope for Spouses, and welcome to this episode of Lunchtime Live. For those of you who are new to our ministry, I started Hope for Spouses shortly after my husband and I were reconciled after a four-year separation. We've been back for five years now, uh, back together, and it's been a wild adventure, wild ride, but we really believe our relationship is better than it's ever been before, and it's because we have set God at the center of our relationship, probably for the first time, really. But while I was preparing for this episode, I read back through my separation journal. And when my husband and I uh, were both working on our reconciliation, wow, what a long slog. I was like, if it seemed to me like I was like literally trying to trudge through a bog of thick black mud up to my thighs, like every step was exhausting and it took forever. I mean, there were so many times where I was tempted to say, forget it, <laughs> just divorce him and have done with it, you know, or, or just drop all of God's standards for righteousness in marriage and let him move back in without any kind of real repentance in his life. Now, of course, neither of those choices would have honored God or the 1,440 days that we were separated. So what about you? What does separation look like for the average spouse of a sexual addict or unfaithful partner? Well, first of all, it is incredibly challenging emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, uh, financially. It's just incredibly challenging. Uh, it's usually sleepless nights, especially in the beginning, dealing with our own grief, feelings of rejection and abandonment, guilt and shame. Uh, it's feeling misunderstood, abandoned or judged by friends, family members, maybe even church family. Uh, maybe dealing with personal chronic illness because of all the trauma and or, you know, working a stressful and demanding full-time job. It's having to figure out do and hire someone to do any kind of home repair that needs to be done. It's a financial hardship and it's the uncertainty of the future. If you have kids, that's a whole nother story. It's single parenting, being the emotional buffer for our children. It's confusion, uh, especially with our kids, their confusion. It's frustration. It's their doubts. Sometimes they're self-loathing because of their parents' separation, like they feel like they're responsible for it. Uh, not to mention being their tutor, their chauffeur, their cook, their maid, their disciplinarian. And that's if you don't have kids with special needs, which will require a whole host of additional therapy. So all without turning into a mindless puddle of emotion in front of your kids every time your spouse does something that triggers you. So. It's hard. It's carrying the burden of this, all of this stuff all by yourself. And on top of that is working through your own recovery in your free time. <laughs> so 
Yeah, it's really hard. And so it'd be really easy to be tempted when we see a tiny little light way down at the end of the tunnel and we want to let our spouse back in. Okay, I'll give you, give you an example from my own life. So about three years into our separation, my husband was starting to make strides. He was still sometimes in contact with his affair partner. I told him that was not acceptable. Well, he and I attended a conference together. And during part of the lesson, we sat next to each other. And during part of the lessons, he cried, like really, really like sobbed. And this was nine months before we actually, I actually trusted him enough to let him back into the house. And we spent more time at this conference uh, that day than we had in three years together. And um, he was, you could tell that it would really, really moved him. It was, it was a, a purity conference. It was uh, for individuals and couples working through this kind of stuff. And I had a friend who loved me so much, <laughs> who pulled me aside just seeing how together we were, how much together we were at this conference. And she looked at me and she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, hey, did you see him? He's like, he's really sorry. And she's like, ta, 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 ta. <laughs> like wanted to slap me across the face. She's like, wake up. She's like, Kim, you can't trust him. You can't trust his words. You can't trust his tears. The only thing you can trust are his actions. And I knew that. I had been telling myself that for three years. But yet here he was. And I was so tempted to let down my guard. And I did to some degree. I was so tempted, but I had friends who loved me, who were willing to speak the truth to me and help me to realize what I was doing. And I found out a few days later that <laughs> He had been texting his affair partner back and forth on the phone and um, I mean, he was trying to be spiritual about it, and, but he was still responding to her texts. <sighs> so, you know, it was like he was still so entrenched in his own sin, but I was blind in so many ways because I just wanted it to be resolved. I wanted it to be worked out. So <laughs> why is premature reconciliation so tempting? Because we're hungry for a resolution and we are slaves of sentimentality and we tend to minimize the bad and focus on the good. And that's called selective memory or denial, a better word for it. You know, we, we end up bathing in uncertainty and we question if their infidelity or poor choices was really our fault. And we can, you know, we want to commit to be different. You know, because we don't know or understand sometimes God's standard for righteous living, whether we're married or not. And we end up compromising and creating our own standard, which usually falls way short of God's standards. So we can also have an inflated sense of our spouse's value in our life. Like we're going to die without them or we can't make it without them. And we think we need them to complete us, you know, when really the only one who completes us is God. We fear losing our spouse or losing our marriage. We fear that this loneliness will just go on forever. We're always going to feel this way. We'll, we fear that they'll, you know, we'll be viewed by our family, by friends, coworkers, or, or even members of our church 
um, as a failure, or maybe even by God, as a failure because we couldn't put our marriage back together. And we fear our spouse will themselves invest in somebody else besides us. I mean, my, my husband lived with his affair partner for two and a half years. And we think if we, if we just let them come back home, then they won't be tempted to be with somebody else. Wrong. But that's what we feel. And we, we start looking for signs of regret from them. And we believe that they're empty apologies because we so desperately want to believe those apologies, but they're empty because there's nothing backing them up. Um, you know, the truth uh, for a long-term sex addict or an adulterer, which is what most married sex addicts are, they're long-term, they've been this way well before they got married, they are adept at something. You know, let's look in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, because Paul, Paul was warning Timothy about people like this people who have these same kind of characteristics as an addict does. And, you know, Paul was talking to Timothy that these were people who themselves were disciples, but whose lives looked anything but like Jesus. And he says, there will be terrible times in the last day. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to acknowledge the truth. So if this is how a Christian spouse can act, this is exactly what Paul was talking about. If this is how somebody who calls himself a Christian can act, if your spouse never claimed to be a Christian, never claimed to love God, how much more so can somebody who doesn't you know, acknowledge God, who doesn't have a knowledge of God and a respect for God's word, how much more can they be like this? And, it, you know, it talks about how they, they worm their way into the homes of gullible women. And I think this is just gullible people because there's women who could do this to unsuspecting men as well. But they worm their way into the homes. And some of them do it very consciously using. Some of them don't even realize what they're doing because they're so enslaved to their sin. And some of them think, oh, if I just get married, this, all, this will all go away. And then it doesn't because it's become such an addictive habit in their life. So when he says that these, these gullible women are always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth, what truth is he talking about here? Now, Paul specifically is talking about the truth of the gospel, about the truth of God's word, about righteous living and about salvation. So how does this, what is the truth then about premature reconciliation. And I think we can glean from this passage and other passages, we can really understand what is the truth? How do we address this? Now, the truth is, is that we end up doing more damage by lowering our boundaries and lowering God's standard and letting in a debt, an addict 
or a serial adulterer, let him come back home, letting him return home. We do more damage than we do by letting them suffer the consequences of their sin until repentance produces a healthy level of spiritual maturity. We do more damage by letting them come back. We just delay their healing and we delay our healing. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Now this is God's standard of repentance. This is what we need to be looking for. In Acts 26, 20, Paul also said, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. And the apostle John says in 1 John 3, 18, let us not love with words and speech, but with actions and in truth. So these are the standards that God sets for us on what to look for when we're looking for somebody who's truly repentant. There is dramatic change in their life. It's not just words. They're not just saying, oh, I'm so sorry. They're not crying. They're not like, oh, I promise I'll be different. No, repentance is changing. It's actions. It's a complete change of the person. That's what real repentance is. So let's look at an Old Testament example that mirrors our own temptations to go back into slavery or oppression that we lived under when we had an addict, addicted or an unfaithful partner. And now I'm talking about manipulation. I'm talking about gaslighting. I'm talking about the abuse, the emotional abuse, the passive aggressive behaviors, the sometimes violent actions making us feel like we were in danger. Uh, making us feel like we're crazy. So all of these are very oppressive to us. Now in Exodus, I want to encourage you on your own to read chapters 12 to 20, chapters 32 to 33, and then Deuteronomy 1 and 2. Now this shows when God led the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery and then led them to wander in the desert. And he did this so they would learn to rely on him. Rather than on others like their Egyptian slave masters or even on themselves. And it's interesting to note that it was easy for God to get Israel out of Egypt and slavery, but the people themselves needed to want to get Egypt or slavery and the conditioned mindset they had with it out of their own hearts. And I think that can be so much our temptation. We, we have this thing, we want to go back to that. Even when it was so unhealthy, we forget how really bad it was. And, and this is exactly what happened with the, with the Israelites, is they forgot what their slavery was like. They were talking about, oh, didn't we have this to eat? And this didn't, we have this to eat. And we had plenty of water. And you brought us out in the desert to die. And it's like, didn't you guys realize, didn't you remember? You like your children were dying, your children were being killed, you know, you don't remember what that slavery was like? And they had forgotten. Now, in fact, Romans 7, 15 to 23 talks about how we become enslaved to certain actions or certain ways of thinking. 
And it says in verse 15, it says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. You see, habitual sin, in other words, medicating pain or fear with sex, food, work, or other idols is not something someone can just stop. That's why you're having such a hard time yourself. Like you want them to come back because you're so conditioned to that slavery. That is, it's a normal process. So that's why we have to fight all the harder to get Egypt out of our own hearts, to get that slavery. That is not the way God designed for us to be treated. Our brain is designed to, to hardwire in, in the way we create, create habits. And God gives us the freedom to choose which habits that we will create. Our spouse had the choice too. So they had, they made the choice to use unhealthy habits and it literally changed their brain. So when we choose godly habits, it goes better for us. But when we have to alter deeply ingrained bad habits like sin or change that destructive hardwiring in our brain, it's like ripping up the foundation of a house and literally having to start from scratch. It costs more. It's much more difficult. It takes infinitely longer. And it, honestly, it requires the help of, of experts in order to really do it effectively. Now, in the West, we tend to want to rush everything. We want everything fast, 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 fast. We expect it. You know, we're always in a hurry. Our culture has wired that into our brains. But that's not the way God operates. In Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon says, There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Sometimes we complain to God, why is this taking so long? We imagine God sitting on his hands doing nothing. Or we start accusing him of being uncaring. When we do that, we've completely forgotten the God of the scriptures. As it says in Psalm 103.8, The God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving devotion. That's who our God is. When we are suffering, we can be a lot like Job, who complained to God. You know, why are you letting all these bad things happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? You know what God said back? He was like, dude, you don't know who you're talking to. <laughs> and then in chapters 38 to 41, God took Job on a tour of creation to remind him just how really insignificant Job was. And, and even Job's pain was in the span of eternity. And that 
God's purposes and plans were so much greater than Job could even grasp with his human mind. You know, God, God never gave Job an answer for his suffering. He never told him why. He just opened his eyes to see his character, God's character, which was full of wisdom and goodness and self-sacrifice and love so that Job could choose to trust God even when he didn't understand how God was working or why he was doing it. The truth is, sometimes God doesn't tell us why we are suffering. He simply points us back to what he's already done for us. He points us back to his record of faithfulness. He points us back to Jesus and his death on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sin and, and be reconciled to a perfect God. He points us back to the countless times he did all the heavy lifting. Like he told the Israelites in Exodus 14, 13 through 14, Moses told the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the Lord's salvation, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. So when God says, stand firm, be still, and know that I am God, we can. If you've been repeatedly tempted to let your addicted partner come back into your life before you've seen real repentance in action, if life is overwhelming you and premature reconciliation seems a small price to pay compared to the burden you are carrying, and if you're looking for some help to clear the debris out of your way so you can start your recovery. Learn to stand firm and be still before God. And I want you to go ahead and schedule a call with me. Go to hopeforspouses.com slash call. Again, that's hopeforspouses.com slash call. We'll get on the phone. We'll talk about 45 minutes or an hour. I'll give you a chance to share your story. We'll funnel that all through the scriptures. We'll give you some guidance on, on how you can really keep those boundaries firm so that you don't have a premature reconciliation, so you're not back, back where you started again, way before all this stuff happened. Okay, so that concludes this episode of the Hope for Spouses Lunchtime Live. I'm Kim Pullen. I'll see you next time. Take care.